never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. We talk about a lot of topics uh, on this channel. We talk in this podcast about uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of things that lead us towards escaping our reality, towards addiction. And today I've got a guest who actually is very much now on the cold face who is out there and is literally rescuing lives. He is a man who has his own trials and tribulations and is now out there literally uh, like like a caped, probably an uncaped hero, actually. But he is out there and he's wanting to make this world a better place. And I'm incredibly honored to have Philippe Blue with me today on my show. Philippe, welcome to my show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having oh, me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, no, it's an honor for me to have you here because <laughs> the, the reality is where you are now, it's 3 a.m. So there's a bit of a scheduling error there. This man actually got up and, uh, you know, is present. And is that not the most beautiful thing that we are present in the moment that we are actually showing up? It's said that 80% of success is actually showing up. And here you are modeling it in the most beautiful thing. And I'm no doubt that that the person that you were in the past and the person I was in the past, we didn't show up, did we? <laughs> we were certainly, my goodness, oh girl. Yeah, um, hmm. I won't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> but how did how how did your story start? I mean, how you are now a caseworker and is out there on and helping people to to turn turn their life around. How was your life? What got you into the addiction field work? I would say it probably started when we came to America. Um, my father, he's from Cuban descent. My mother's from Haitian descent, oh. and my father was a political refugee, I'd say. Anyways, when we came to America, we basically had to erase our cultural background. He didn't want us to speak Spanish. He didn't want us to speak Creole. He wanted us just to speak the American language. And so with that, his children didn't have much of an identity because we this identity as American was foreign to us as in comparison to our homelands. Um, and as we grew up, you know what I'm saying, wanting to be a part of something, you know, joining, playing basketball, playing football, playing sports. Mm -hmm. But then also, it depended on what neighborhood we lived in, wanting to be a part of the peers who might have been gang infested or, or drug users. Yeah. So falling into those traps. When later, when I moved up north and then my brother came to follow me a year or two later, we fell into the same patterns of gang relations. Mm. You know, we joined gangs, and though we chose different paths in the gang, when he was killed, it basically, how you say, when you hit rock bottom, his death was probably my rock bottom. I don't think I would have ever had a rock bottom because I don't think my use was that complicated that it would have led to that <clears throat> until that happened, the pain of his death the blame that I put on myself because I didn't protect him. Two years, I can't even account for so drug infested, so in my grief, so much pain, so much pouring into trying to undo what was done. Now knowing it can't be undone, there's nothing I can do to bring him back. But that hurt, to bury that hurt, going into hardcore drugs, doing 
crimes that I can't even won't even speak on now as a therapist in order to deal with that pain to get, erase that pain hmm. but from that you know when I had a psychotic break didn't get the appropriate level of care I needed didn't get the appropriate level of help I needed zoom out stabilize moved it from um, New London back to the south um didn't have the same peer influences. I was trying to build a family, trying to have a family. Mm -hmm. But being stabilized, I said, what could I do to undo everything that I've done and everything that I experienced? And I took a philosophy class and it was just so mind opening. I was like, whoa, this is deep. I never heard anything like this before. Never experienced anything like this before because American education systems are shit. <laughs> no shit Sherlock <laughs> okay and so I said what can I do and so I felt doing the human services doing the mental health work doing the addiction work is something I can do for the rest of my days and not only that yeah. something I can do to undo all the pain that I've caused wow wow and that is making amends I mean that is that is part and parcel of the twelve step program, um, yeah. or the twelve step system. My goodness, um, you say you, you describe well. You skimmed over the surface of of some very traumatic times, um, and I love it that you that you actually raise the issue of lost identity, of of this kind of who am I. Um, that is often there, and and we know certainly in functional medicine that that there is a lot of trauma from the parents and the great grandparents actually handed down uh, generationally through our genes. Um, so there were a lot of other things happening there that set you up, and of course there are genetic predispositions towards alcoholism, towards addictions, etc. So you had um, quite a lot of things that were setting you up to end up where you did what changed what made you turn that path around because you could have easily continued you could have easily um uh, continued with this game and being more self-destructive and uh, finally end up on a slap or end up in jail um what changed a lot of my peers say I'm blessed and highly favored when they talk about their predicaments. And I would have to use that default answer. I'm blessed and highly favored. There's no reason <laughs> why the crimes that I've committed after my brother's death shouldn't resulted in a life sentence or death itself. I'll be honest with you. Right. When I got that break, when I got that grace from God, when that didn't, that was not going to be the end of my story, the end chapter. I was saying, well, if I stay in Connecticut, well, this is, is the story is going to have another chapter that's very reminiscent of the previous one, just mm. based on everything that's going on with these gangs right now and all the crimes that I committed. And of course, mm. people wanting to get at me because of what I've mm. done sure. and because of who what gangs I'm associated with. My ex-girlfriend down south <clears throat> was in the military. She said, Felipe, come down south. So I moved down south. I took a bus. It was like, I don't know, a 16 or 20 hour trip. And I just thought about it, just thought about it. And on the way down south, I thought about it. 
I don't have to be who I was. I can be anybody I want to be. So I became somebody else. See, here in New Zealand, we have good gangs as well. And it is very hard to get out of a gang. So was there, did you face the same, the same struggles or was your gang? I would say, I would say yes, but I've only returned to New London, Connecticut one time. And that was for a funeral. Yeah. Did not stay any significant amount of time to get any confrontations from my right. brethren. So yeah. because I moved totally I right. moved a good 12 hours away, I wouldn't have the same impact on my leaving the gang as somebody who stayed in the same city. I hear you. If I stayed in London and tried to walk away, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. My point. My point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, that's brilliant. So it was not a gang that was uh, already a, a, a kind of uh, all the states of the United States, but it was more a localized uh, problem. Right. No, right. That's right. Right. Oh, I'm I'm so pleased for you, man. But then again, there you were identifying yourself as a young man with all those principles, the type A macho, uh, you would say probably toxic masculinity um, that was associated with the gang. How did you dealing now with that that brotherhood was gone now you were alone down in the south um what the hell happened when i was in the gang in new london even before you know my brother got killed and everything yeah. i was into music i was a rapper i had a dj <laughs> i had a rap group in fact he was in my rap group so i didn't really have before his death i wasn't really into the, gang gang stuff. I was into the mixtape circuit. I was into making music. I was into basically, I'll be your storyteller for everything y'all are doing. And that's what I do. So when I moved down south, I really just focused on the music. I had a new yeah. brotherhood in music that was purely music without yeah. gang associations. People from all over, because it was a military town. So people from Canada, people from LA, people from other parts of the South, people from the East Coast, and built a collective and had a new rap group. And that was my oh. focus. That was my brother. And in a way, it was my gang, but it was yeah. a musical gang, and it was called <laughs> Scorn. <laughs> <laughs> so, but here you are. Normally, rap is associated with, you know, uh, not the nicest yes. topics. So oh, it's yes. interesting that you chose that. Topics. The gangs, the shootings, the deaths, oh, the murders, the disrespect of women, the synodity, <laughs> all that was in the music. <laughs> was, yeah, don't ever, don't go, don't listen to any music I did from 99 to 2003. <laughs> you would judge me harshly, trust me. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. No, no, it's, it, it is what it is. It's just... Um, but <laughs> no, but again, you actually escaped um, and you you started transforming. You started uh, gaining confidence. You, I hear in your words already or between the lines, I hear there's this kind of new person developing there, which is beautiful. So there you were actually truly looking after yourself, uh, rebuilding yourself. Which is weird. I often say that when I came out of rehab, um, it was like like I was like an empty canvas. I had no clue who I was. Um, once you stripped away all the labels that I put on myself, and uh, who was Stefan really? Uh, I had no bloody clue. 
And that was actually, we found that a privilege to explore, to see who is the new guy? Who who do I want to be when I grow up? I'm still trying to and figure that fair. out. <laughs> exactly. That's, and that's how I was in the music. Hmm. The beats told me who I was going to be on any particular music track, any particular beat. Yeah. I was defining my, I was figuring out who I was as I was going to school, as I was interacting with these new peers, as I was in a relationship and then got married. I had to define, I was redefining myself because I didn't have these same role models or I didn't have these same parameters that taught me these techniques. My father and my mother's relationship was toxic. My father, when he had an affair and left my mom and my mom did what she did and got on drugs, it was toxic. It was no representation of what I wanted to have in my family. I couldn't define myself by the past. I had to define myself in the present. Beautiful. Beautiful. And sometimes that is that is the, the beautiful thing that we can do. But having said that, whilst the past does not equal the future, I strongly, strongly believe that, um, there is still, we need to look at the mistakes of the past, both from us as us as individuals, but also from the generations before us to see where have we come from and why did things pan out the way they did. Um, so it is it is our duty to look at those kind of things, learn from them and prevent them happening again in the future. I mean, that's, that's, and that's something that you do. But I mean, so far, you have there was a crisis, uh, the aeroplane was shaking, the oxygen came down, you put on the mask, looked after yourself. But then what? When did Mrs. Wright come on to the to play? Miss Wright was somebody who I was dealing with when I was in high school. She was two grades above me. <laughs> right. She went into the military, we went our separate ways, then I moved up north, got into everything I got into. But then somehow we just reconnected. It might have been a phone call. It might have yeah. been an email. And boom, she was just like, whoa, bro, you're wild. And this, ain't even no, this isn't who you are. Come down south. Get away from all that. Uh, and it was. Uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida was way different than New London, Connecticut. It was almost like night and day. We're talking about the land of the zombies and the land of, of white beaches with clear water. <laughs> I couldn't help but be somebody different. The environment oh, like. didn't support who I previously was. I love it. I love it. Um, so was she instrumental? She supported me. Like, how often does somebody support you? They buy you your keyboards. They buy you your recording equipment. They give you the time and space you need to record. They support you with your friends, even though they don't care for rap like that, and let you do what you do, because they know that was your outlet. They know that was your therapy. <laughs> oh, how beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Okay. But so there you were. So now the rapper uh, redefining yourself. Uh, slowly things are getting on the mend in your private life. Fantastic. But that's still a million light years away from the job that you're doing now. So yeah. um, first of all, what, because nobody you... was at a better spot. You know, I was still doing the marijuana, you know. I saying? was about to ask you. That's right. <laughs> you don't just stop that all, you know. Uh, that was my that was the that was the deal with my depression and anxiety. Sure, that was what it was for. No, because it was all affiliated with the you know the world I was in now, the the preppy boy rap or the people that rapped about stuff but didn't necessarily go all the way into it. It was on January fourth, two thousand three, that I said I'm not smoking marijuana because what was happening while I was still adjusting to new life was that I wasn't I was stuck kind of in a way. I worked a mediocre job, made mediocre money. Uh-huh. My wife was the breadwinner. 
she probably felt some kind of way about it. I know years later that she did feel some type of way about it, one of the grounds of our divorce. Um, and when I said stop, that's when I, could, I got motivated, Doug. Yeah. Because marijuana kind of dampens you. It doesn't give you the motivation. You can be in the most like shittiest situation and be like, oh, okay, it's cool, it's cool, it's mm-hmm. cool. I didn't want it to be cool anymore. I had a son at, by that time, <laughs> and I wanted to be better. I wanted to be something yeah. greater. Boom. Yeah. So Felipe, a lot of a lot of artists would argue, no, 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 the Mariana actually helps me in my mm-hmm. craft. It helps me to be creative. Um, what would you say to that? Oh, and I agree. But by that time, the music scene had changed so much. In January 4, 2003, I was yeah. like, mm, the music's changing too much. I can't really keep up with these changes. Let me do something else. And that's when I pretty much put music to the side. And that's oh. when I started focusing on a career in human services. I first went to school for public services. Uh-huh. Then I got my human services degree. And then I kept going. I got my master's in mental health counseling. Nice one. Nice one. And of course, once you start on a journey, um, it becomes its own living being the path that is meandering, you never see around the next corner. And then suddenly a new opportunity arises and a new this and that arises. Um, but you could have chosen so many other forms of counseling, of of other paths, yet you chose addiction. Well, there's a story behind that. <laughs> my degree is in clinical mental health counseling. That So my degree should have been licensed professional counseling. My career should have been licensed professional counseling. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were going through a divorce. She moved to Georgia. I moved. To, um, I stayed okay. in South Carolina. Didn't like being in South Carolina as I was working as a vocational rehabilitation with the master's degree that I had. I said, this isn't counseling. I don't like this. Had a friend that lived in North Carolina who graduated with me. She said, you villages is where it's at. Come up here. Tell me, give me the answers to the phone test. Boom, she gave me the answers. Bam, I aced it, so they picked me up. (laughs) (laughs) Moved to North Carolina, started working in the field. Wasn't a good fit. Started working for another company where I was the, the, the leader, the boss. They lost their certification, then moved to another company where I was under somebody who wasn't where I was clinically, and I felt some type of way about it. The easiest degree to get is an addiction. The easiest certification licensure to get is in addictions in North Carolina because you don't have to test first. And I wasn't eligible to take the licensed clinical social worker one because my degree is not in social work. It's in counseling. With the counseling one, I would have to test first. And uh, I wasn't comfortable taking tests like that. Uh, the school I went to was a, was a had a writing background. You were known to m- really write things. You didn't really test out. And I've uh, always had test anxiety. It was a an anxiety that had no founding because I honestly never failed a test. still come on man same here and i hate tests i hate them with a passion that's the reason i became instructor in in all the courses so that i didn't have to go through the bloody testing i was able to give the test (laughs) oh bloody hell oh no you're quite right uh but here you go interesting so you started to change you went again through trial tribulations your divorce that would have not been easy was there no temptation to go back to some of the 
more relaxing lifestyle? When I received, because we didn't officially divorce, we separated. But when she sent me my divorce papers, I think that was 2010, around the same time, January, I want to I want to say no to the substances, but it got me into such a dark place. I did contemplate suicide. It and we might not like it, but these emotions are there. And I think that is that is where so many addicts uh, struggle because they sort of think they're in their beautiful bubble there and we are, ah, oh, no, we are all loving and we are so positive people. And then life happens and it kicks you in the balls and fuck me, it is. And that's exactly what, what continues to happen in my life. So, and that will, for everyone out there, guys, you're, you're no doubt you're going through hard times. There's no two ways around that. The last three years were bitches. Um, so I don't know anyone who had a good time. So the question is, how do we do we continue? And for those of you who have maybe fallen off the wagon, for those of you who have lapsed a little bit, cool, fantastic. Um, congratulations. Because now you have figured out that you're not foolproof, you're not invincible, you're not Superman <laughs> with the perfect moral compass, <laughs> my ass. No, so that's normal. We all struggle and it's okay. It's okay to lapse. Uh, it's okay to have a pity party, crying out loud, okay? And I love it that you, that you were, what you were saying about the depression there and what you admitted to the suicidal thoughts. 6% of the people, um, have had suicidal thoughts in the last year. Um, so guys, don't feel ashamed and don't feel don't feel upset. This is just these are neurochemical waves washing over you. And well, and admittedly, there are a lot of good reasons why shit has happened. But you know, it is, I guess that's where this show and people like you, Felipe, are so important because we are open and transparent about those struggles. And whilst addiction is a is a disease of hiding, it's a disease of of keeping it all you know, wrapped up. No, no, I'm not. I, I'm fine. I'm fine. Bullshit, you are. Right. So, right. Wow. Um, were there people who helped you when during the divorce, or were were you in your teaching, in your in your education, were you exposed to uh, supervision? Uh, where maybe you could have you could have tapped into that. My clinical supervisor was the worst. So no, they didn't find solace there. <laughs> I found solace in the community I was in. I was in a a poetry community. I had a great friend named Camille Brown, who was a great support for me at the time. My girlfriend, who a, a person who became my girlfriend later, Martini Matravel, who was also from Haiti who was a very great support. Luckily, I had the right supports to keep me balanced. And then just finding purpose in my work was a way mm -hmm. to be like, if if I succumb to my depression, if I succumb to you know, hurting myself or suiciding, mm -hmm. what do, legacy do I leave behind? Nice. And I had nice. this thing in which I wanted to always do more I wanted to do the good work that my brother could have done and do the good work that I could do to undo all the bad things that we've done. And I focused on that for so long, so long that I always had to go hard, go hard in order to 
do the good work that he could have contributed to the world if he wasn't murdered. And I think that purpose kept me alive for a long time until me and my ex-wife got to a place where we were good, I would say great friends, and worked on co-parenting our kids. And that was enough for me then. by then. Well, you're saying, well, very powerful words there. But I feel a pressure there on you. You put a lot of, or you did put a lot of pressure on yourself to to go out there. And that it's in, in, in its own right is stress. And maybe even a bit distress. Um, because you just keep pushing, 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 pushing. Uh, there's the alpha male again coming out. Uh, <laughs> sometimes we need that guy. So don't get me wrong. I love that guy. You know, I, I call him the Viking who drinks out of the skulls of his enemies. Um, I like that dude. Um, as uh, Having said that, I'd rather have him kept keep him in the dungeon. Okay. From now and then he, he has to come out. But mm. so how did you? You're right. Mm -hmm. You're right. It got to a point where it was too much. I was doing too much. Uh, a friend of mine named Mary, Mary Wright, she knew that I was, you know, I had a military background, but I wasn't connected to any military services, like veteran services. And she got me reconnected with veteran services to get me the nice. help I needed. And I got to get the support I needed because I didn't think I was eligible because I didn't have a, a recognized service injury or anything like that. And I wasn't told anything upon discharge regarding being connected to the VA or anything like that. Nice. She indicated that I was eligible. And then I went and I was eligible and I got the help I needed. So I started to get psychiatric help. I started to get mental health help, which were services that probably I did not know were readily available to me. Because here in America, paying out of your pocket for mental health services is very expensive if you don't have the right insurance. Mm -hmm. And when you work for mental health companies, unfortunately, they get the most BS type of insurance that you're not going to get a good deal on mental health services. Wow. Now, this is before Obamacare and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, when you can buy it, you can go on the marketplace and choose your own insurance. So this mm -hmm. is before that time period. Mm -hmm. Bloody hell. But now you're out there, you have actually grown. And I guess it's it's the old adage that that you create diamonds with pressure. <laughs> Hell, man, you had your pressure. <laughs> and here you are, a rough diamond sitting in front of me, a blue sapphire, so to speak. Um, now, having said that, I mean, you are now out there um, and literally making lives better rescuing lives i want to i want to change the tack of our interview a bit, little bit because i've got you there on literally on the with the finger on the pulse um let's actually talk a bit about about the current situation 2023 what shit is on the street we all know i mean i had i had um fuck me can't remember the name of my guests that I had on. Shit. <laughs> shit, 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 shit. So what I do? So now there's a bit of pause where I can cut. Um, ben Westhoff, thank you. Ben Westhoff, he's the he's the the author of um, Fentanyl Inc. 
uh, fantastic mm-hmm. book uh, where he investigated the, the fentanyl trade. So what I do now is um, is five seconds pause and then a sound clap and then we continue and I, I keep talking. I want to change tack a little bit because Philippe, you're out there. You are, you've literally got the finger on the pulse um, of what is currently the drug scene in the United States, which is of, of high interest to me because you guys are probably a little bit further down the line than we are here in New Zealand or maybe other countries. Equally, you're being targeted uh, by the Chinese through the, the Mexican cartels with fentanyl and car fentanyl and whatever fentanyl analogs there are. It's like a dirty war being done. And for any of you think, what the hell is he talking about? Go back to the interview that I had with Ben Westhoff, um, who is the author of Fentanyl Inc. Um, so where he has investigated the, the link between China, um, fentanyl and uh, the cartels, which are basically have created a situation that we had last year. 100,000 deaths of, of, opiate, of opiate overdoses. Um, what is the situation that you are seeing down there exactly where are you based now to get a better picture i'm based in durham north carolina so we're near um so that's like duke university unc university of north carolina wake med north carolina state we got like four big universities all within 35 miles of each other right um so we're like boom right there i work at a methadone clinic for one part of my job and with that, you know, people, they use methadone to treat opiate addiction or yeah. to have harm reduction regarding opiate addiction. Unfortunately, it's not really, it's not adequately treating opiate addiction because people are still using opiates, crack cocaine, meth in some cases, other illicits, benzos, alcohol, which we know those two on top of methadone can kill you. Shit, yeah. <clears throat> um, Across the board, even in my private practice, fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. I had a client die. All my client did was marijuana. Uh, Apparently, her marijuana was laced with fentanyl at one time. And she she overdosed on fentanyl and died. Her daughter screaming and hollering, my mama never did drugs. All she did was marijuana for anxiety. And I knew Mm. this to be true. Mm. But one day, I guess the the dealer wanted to be creative or... Mm try something different or get a better high mm. off the, for his mm. people sure. or maybe who he got it from. That's what they did. And that's boom, what... Now this 42 year old woman is dead and her daughter in her senior year of high school on the brim of dro- dropping out because she's so distraught about her mother's death. People talk about, is... they want to, Oh, I think I'm getting a benzo boom, compressed fentanyl. Mm. Oh, I think I'm getting a Xanax boom. Press exactly. They don't even know exactly. what they're getting these days. And then sometimes when they find out, they still go to that person because for some reason they like that they like that high. Mm, of course. Ah, uh, far out. And so it is. It's actually. I know that this has been the practice, but it is not very well documented. I mean, this goes back to to the Vietnam War, where Mariana um, in in Southeast Asia was laced with opium. Um, so you take one big swig and boom, boom, 
Um, so, but nowadays we are talking about substances that are so much more potent. Fentanyl is something that I use virtually every day, not actually every day, in virtually every case that I do as an anesthetist. But we use it very, very carefully because it's such a powerful drug. Um, mm -hmm. Don't you think for a moment that the same care is provided by your local uh, dealer? No. They have got basically the Mariana spread out on a baking tray. Then they use a bit of powder, go over it like a bad chef. Um, and you have got then some areas where there might be a hell of a lot of fentanyl on your Mariana and other areas where there's very little on it. Uh, you have no idea what you're getting there. Okay, so that is the problem nowadays that we are facing. Man, and so this is a problem. It has occurred since 2014. Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Are there actually other like controls that are changing it? Before the pan, right before the pandemic, I might have heard about fentanyl here and there. It was very yeah. rare. In fact, it wasn't even something that we even focused on because it was so rare that we heard about it. Yeah. See, like in the pandemic, it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger oh. and bigger. During the pandemic, many people on my private caseload died or overdosed. In fact, I hate to say I have favorite clients, but some of my favorite clients succumbed to death behind yeah. fentanyl overdoses or what appeared to be a fentanyl yeah. overdose. Yeah. They say it takes four or five Narcans to bring you back from a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. I don't know anybody who hangs around enough people to give them four or five Narcans. Most people, they use alone or with one other. That means that other person has a Narcan maybe, and maybe they have a Narcan. That's only two. Yeah. which is why we have all these overdoses yeah. of deaths for fentanyl because there's not enough people around Thanks that has that many um, Narcans to bring you back. And nobody would think to stick you four or five times to bring you back. Mm. I don't even think EMSs know that, that to do that. Mm. I mean, it is it is basically a balance. You have got a very strong opiate that is given in an overdose. Um, you need to just hammer it with, with the, the, um, the antidote to it oh man is it so it's getting worse why is it getting worse do you feel yeah. that do you feel that it is is uh this is a targeted cartel move to bring uh drugs into north carolina is there is there like a wave coming from from the south uh coming across or what is happening I can't really I would say that it's probably due to the numerous colleges, some well-off colleges like Duke and UNC and Wake Med. Some of the HBCUs probably will even be targeted based on the population of people who normally do or are known to use drugs. Mm. I would say if it's just too concentrated in education, all these colleges and universities is a focal point. But I also want to say we're off a major highway, a highway that basically goes all the way from the south all the way to the north. Mm. Being so close to the highway is probably an accessible way to get the drugs to us, mm. boom, drop off points or whatever. Mm. As this is also this area is also known for uh, um sex trafficking just because of the same things, the highway. Shit. I didn't realize that. Does that reflect? Then again, also, it's just that it's so easy to make. It's so easy to get access to. It is probably more profitable than any other drug besides heroin. Oh, absolutely. 
And that is the, the reason of that is its potency, because you in order to get the same bang for the buck, you need to ship a lot of cocaine, whilst you just need to ship a small kilogram of of a substance that looks like bloody sugar. Um, and it can be easily hidden and is much easier to be moved. So absolutely true. Um, you, you're malleable and you can shape into anything. Oh, I can make this one look like a Benzo. Mm. Oh, I can make this one look like a Xanax. So easier to get it to you yeah. because you because you can make it do whatever you want it to do. Yeah. Kind of like, I don't know, salmon or whatever. It tastes whatever you flavor it like. <laughs> it's just like, hey, I'm, th I'm, I'm taking a benzo. I didn't uh, know I was taking fentanyl. Well, you know it wasn't a benzo the way it made you feel, dummy. Uh, <laughs> so is it actually reflected, whilst you say you've got a, a lot of young clientele there, um, is that also, are these the, the people actually that turn up with overdoses? It's a mixed bag. I mean, I want to say it's a lot of the people like around middle age that I'm seeing on the death reports as of late. Especially, let's say you had a complicated health issue. Let's say you had diabetes. I oh. think the people that have other health issues probably are easier to succumb to the, um, the fentanyl. These young ones, yeah, they, 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 they don't, I don't know yet because they're, they're young. They might just be starting on they're hard drugs. Mm. I do know that several of them, 21 through 23, already have congestive heart failure behind their drug use. All right. Yeah. And it just shows, yeah. Oh, man. Um, If I was to give you, what should we say, a billion dollars? I give you a billion dollars. What would you change? What would you think is the need? Um on the cold phase? Here, it would be housing stabilization, mm, exactly. resource stabilization, exactly. job, vocation stabilization. Absolutely. Their basic needs aren't being met. Correct. Not Them not understanding that your basic needs probably can't be met if you're spending your money on drugs. Mm. But I feel like a lot of times they're numbing their, themselves to their experience. Oh, this is going on. I'm, I don't have the best house. This is a crack infested area. There's rats and roaches, da, da, da. Let me just get high so I don't have to feel it for a while. Mm -hmm. I hear this often enough. Mm -hmm. I to hear that people, these young ones who might have a, a criminal record and don't think they can get adequate em employment until I teach them that they can. But oftentimes they already mm -hmm. got too deep into their addiction are too deep into their maladaptive behaviors mm. that they feel they can't get one of the jobs that will still accept them with a criminal record. Mm. Um, well, exactly. And getting I, them the help they need. Like some mm. don't even believe that they have trauma. Not understanding that if we really look at your life, your trauma is contributing to your continued use and you're numbing yourself to the pain that you've experienced. Even Absolutely. if you were the one who shot somebody and mm. you did eight or 10 yeah. years or they gave yeah. you a misdemeanor, the pain that you don't even normally know to realize is what's eating you up inside that you're numbing because you took mm. someone's life. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And and quite right. It is. I mean, I I had a gang assault um, that when I was 13, and I rephrased it in my mind. This construct came as me being the survivor, me being the, the fighter, uh, me being the martial artist who will never get caught out. Um, if you really look at it, it was freaking PTSD. Um, I can take off all the, 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 the score marks there. 
But it, I didn't realize it until really probably about five, six, seven years ago now ago um, when uh, I saw another friend of mine going through some hard times, his PTSD flared up and suddenly I realized, shit, whatever I'm seeing here in him is me. And uh, that was brutal. So here I am, even in reasonably educated, reasonably knowledgeable about PTSD. Sometimes you don't understand the trauma that really has occurred to you yourself. And that is uh, very powerful what you just said, man. Um, Paul, you're so right. You're so right. There are, this is, and, and again, this is where the community comes in. The opposite of addiction is connection. When you actually start pinging people together and and showing them that there are ways out, that you can clean up your neighborhood, that you can actually, instead of having a rusting car there, put a bloody vegetable bed there um, and um, and start creating something, uh, develop again an identity, again, where we started in our interview, to actually say, no, I'm, I'm not a victim. I will now change. And, and to give them the power back, that is so beautiful. In the interim, though, we need to do something about the drug overdoses. Um, so, uh, I mean, one of the, the news that recently broke was Narcan is coming off-label. In other words, you, you can, uh, not off-label, you can buy it over the counter now. Um, do you think that will make a difference? Here, no, because we can give Narcan for free here. The health department, um, pharmacies, um, methadone clinics, regular mental health clinics. Mm. If you ask your prescriber, can you get a Narcan, they will give you a Narcan. So I would say just because you can get it over the counter now, I don't see how that would change because now you're paying for it, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Touche, touche. I didn't think about it. So, is that just the whole thing about Nakan? Is it a bit of whitewashing? Is it a bit doing some like window dressing? Um, that we're that that this is something way we're doing something. Well, maybe it's promoting normal people, mm. teachers. Um clerksmen's, post people, maybe it's promoting them getting it. And when they see somebody overdosing, they'll have a, a Narcan on them because nice. lay people don't normally have Narcan on them. Mm, so maybe nice. this will give lay people access to Narcan to address the um, opiate addiction. Nice. I just don't know many lay people that come across people that's overdosing. So I don't know. Mm, very good point made. Okay. Wow. So uh, then, since we know that uh, that it's the drug cartels uh, that that are basically pushing the drugs, the fentanyl, through, um, are you aware of of initiatives to curb that, um, to 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 do something about it? I mean, I I have got a strong stance against gangs, um, and what is what is happening really as far as you are aware there. I don't really know. Our our police force here in Durham and Raleigh and Chapel Hill are, are grumbling about underfunding, about, about defunding right. the police. They're right. grappling with, with Black Lives Matter issues. They're grappling with 
You know what I'm saying? You, we make a report about a drug deal, and they're saying, do you have video footage of it? Then we can't do anything. Yeah. I think in many ways their hands are tied, or they're tying their own hands to let you know, well, if you want to do this to us, this is what we, this is what underfunding or defunding looks like, even though they're not officially defunded yet. Okay, okay. Passive aggressive stance. Okay. Damn. Damn. Well, that's the last thing that you, that a country needs. Um, okay, I think we're now getting into politics. And before um <laughs> before the CIA, FBI, and any other alphabet soup group uh shuts you down, we better stop dear. <laughs> Oh bloody hell! Indeed, indeed. Felipe, if you are you're a man who is it was only just starting. Uh, we are all on a journey, and I mean, who will you be in a year's time? Who will you be in five years' time? How well, not officially you... self-starting. About twenty years in the game. <laughs> in five years' time, well, this year I hope to write another book. I want to write a book on. Halt, you know, don't allow yourself nice. to get too hungry, angry, yes, lonely or tired. I had yep. a client I was talking about this concept with, and I said, you know what? I would love to get her a book about it. And I Googled and I Googled. I could never find a book about it. Yeah. Couldn't find a book about it. Only I've heard about this in passing. I've heard about this in circles. I've seen uh, little uh, passages uh, written about it, yeah. but I could not find a full book on it. Yeah. So I'm going to write a book about Halt. Good man, good man. And when I'm saying um, you're only just starting out, um, you, we both have come a long way, but ultimately, I still think, hmm, yes, oh, yeah. okay, uh, you know, there's so much in the game. There's so there's, much to do. Right? Exactly, exactly right. What is the next thing? <laughs> so no, I, yeah, I, I definitely can't want to write that book about Halt. <laughs> and I, I think definitely want to have the pandemic kind of slowed me down. It really threw me for a loop. I'll be honest. I was on the brim of doing some really big things um, at the end of 2020 going into that year, yeah. the following year. And then the pandemic hanging, just uh, unhinged all that stuff, all the conferences exactly. and all that. I just really want to be known as an expert in the field of trauma addiction and things yeah. like that. I want to get on these, I want to get on conferences. I want to get on, nice. these, I want to do workshops. Nice. I want to be, I want to be in other places like Vegas and LA yeah. and New York yeah. and do talks and do workshops. Yeah. to address these issues and to teach people that aren't in the addiction field, like the social workers yeah. or the um, mental health counselors, what they can do to address the issue and make it palatable for them so they can have a better understanding. Far too often, I see these people judging people that have addiction uh, backgrounds. And they may not think they're doing it, but I hear about them in consultations. I hear how they label. Uh, um, to be honest, I hear it amongst my own peers sometimes, and I find it despicable because a lot of them maybe don't have an addiction background, but they feel a certain way about addiction people. Why are you in this field and you feel that way, you know? Which is bullshit. The, the rate of chemical addiction, I would say, is one in three. Uh, even if you're more conservative, one in four, one in five, that's still a hell of a lot of people. Um, so, And that includes probably some of your peers. 
<laughs> they just haven't figured it out. So therefore, I've always find it amazing when people take a, a, a high, the moral high ground. Um, mm -hmm. And then when you when you actually look behind the curtains and you actually right. see, you know. But how high or moral is their high ground when they're downing somebody else or treating somebody as less than, you know? So I hear you, brother. I hear you. Philippa, you're an amazing man. I am so grateful that you came onto my show, that you shared some of the insights there. If people gel with you, if they want to know more about you and, and the amazing work you're doing, where can they find you? It's easy to find me, morethantherapy.org. That's morethantherapy.org. And anywhere you put more than therapy, all the social medias will pop up. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. We've got all of his, uh, his info there. Philippe, you're an amazing man. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for going out there and trying to make this world a better place. It, the world needs it. It needs more people like you. And it is, it's amazing that you came onto my show. Thank you so much, brother. And thank you for having such a show. I think it's well needed to get the word word out mm -hmm. to remove the stigma associated with addiction and mental health issues. That's why I have more than therapy. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes Beautiful. we won't necessarily get the help we need because we okay. feel stigmatized. They feel less than. Mm -hmm. I think shows like yours, shows like mine, I think that give people the okay to mm -hmm. get the help they need. So thank you regarding the work you're doing. <laughs> Exactly. And you guys out there, there is hope. Look, if two numb nuts like us uh, can get our shit together, you guys have got a more than fair chance. Okay. So trust me, there is hope, there is help, and you can do it. So look after yourself and live with passion. Okay. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.